Hi, I'm Paul Listick, and welcome to Behind the Curtain. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listick Behind the Curtain, the opportunity for me every week to take a look at things I don't often look at on my political report show on WGN-TV. And today, I'm going to be chatting with the author of a new book called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. The author is Elbridge A. Colby. He's a co-founder, principal of the Marathon Initiative, and he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development from 2017 to 2018, which actually led to the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Albert Colby joins me now to talk about that new book and some interesting concepts about war and peace. Mr. Colby, thanks for joining us here on Behind the Curtain. Great to be with you, Paul. Thanks. So your book is about war. I mean, when I first got it, I first reading it. Okay, it's a book about war and how it should be fought. But you know, the deeper you get into the book, you realize, if I'm reading you correctly, that the real purpose is to promote peace and that we can no longer depend on our strength and our power to deal with challenges. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I think that's actually a very wise way of putting it. Thank you. Um, When I was working on the national defense strategy, one of the counterparts uh, that I was working with, he somewhat jokingly, but I think he said that there's a smell of gunpowder about that strategy. And and the book is a similar logic, but it's really, in my view, just sort of passionately motivated by the desire for peace, but also the conviction that peace is not sort of a self-generating thing or merely a a product of good intentions or, or peaceful intentions. It's a product of being prepared and any potential aggressors seeing that, that, you know, uh, uh, attacking you or your, your really important interests is not a wise decision. So, but as you say, the goal in my view is a decent peace, including with China. And so to understand, right. And you do a lot of writing about China, Russia, these are key adversaries, even as we speak now. Um, and the book asks the question, what is the best defense strategy for the United States? Or I suppose if I put that differently, uh, it really asks, under what circumstances should we fight and, and, and do so in a sane way? Really important questions, especially since every president who makes decisions about sending uh, young men and women into battle, we, we raise that question. Is this the right thing to do? Is this the smart thing? Is it the sane thing? So I guess I'll pose that general question, which is, when should we fight? Well, look, I think I think you put it very well, but you know, I'll tell you my personal inclination is I tend to be non-interventionist. I've I've not supported the vast majority of the military actions in my adult lifetime, but I think on the other hand, there is a you know a growing sentiment in the country to sort of like say just forget about the rest of the world. And I don't think that's prudent or wise either. And so, what I really tried to do in the book is lay out, hopefully, in a sort of logical step-by-step fashion, you know how we should think about defense strategy, which is ultimately a question of how, you know, what, what we should have a military for and how we should use it, but prepared to use it, certainly. And that should, you know, really should proceed from some direct conception of how that employment and military force connects to Americans' interests. Look, we're a republic, right? And so our foreign policy should serve the interests of the American people in an enlightened way that works with others, yes, but it should be connected to their interests, not for somebody's vanity or pet projects or what have you. And I think in that context where I really sort of center or ground the whole idea is that we want to protect the American model, the American experiments. You know, the old Lincoln line about nobody will be able to leap across the ocean. It's, you know, it's very difficult to attack America directly. And we have very strong ways of defending ourselves against direct attack. But what I do worry about, Paul, over time is essentially the agglomeration or the gathering of enormous power 
by basically another country or another state, and then using that leverage to force us to do what they want, in a sense, using you know th- that sort of um, influence over us. And, and, and when you look at the world that way, you say by far the most serious threat is China and Asia. And that's because Asia is by far the most important part of the global economy. We're all going to be working for the, for the Asian market in the future in one way or another. And China is by far the other most important uh, country in the international system. And so that's by far the most plausible actor that could get that kind of power. Not Russia, not North Korea, not Iran, not Venezuela, not Cuba. You can go on. doesn't mean those aren't bad guys that we don't wish them ill or vice versa. But it means that that's the thing that we really need to prevent. And I think if you go back on the long arc of American history, that has tended to be basically the logic of our foreign policy. And so in that context, I think we should be prepared to fight to defend the Ameri- you know, American security, and, but also our, our prosperity our, and our liberties, because obviously that's connected to our prosperity in the sense that, you know, you can't be free if the guy, you know, if we're all working essentially for the Chinese Communist Party, which is the sort of a, a simplest, simplistic way of thinking about it. But, it. but there's a lot of truth there. And that's where we should be prepared to fight. But I think you, you put your finger on it with we've got to be able to fight in a sane way. And the reality is that China is by far the most powerful state to emerge in the international system since we did in the 19th century. For the first time in 150 years, we're not clearly the world's largest economy, and they are turning their wealth into military power. And so we've got to be able to be prepared to fight, uh, f- fight them. In particular, and this is the kind of idea I developed, to, to sustain a balance of power along with other countries. We need to be able to defend other countries in what I think of as an anti-hegemonic coalition, a coalition designed to prevent China from dominating Asia, India, Japan, et cetera. They don't want China to dominate them either. Well, that's what our military should be primed to do, but that's going to take tremendous focus, and we're going to have to stop doing a lot of other things in order to, to resource it. Well, let me pick up on this. You know, we have a very strong focus on China in what you're saying now, also in the book. And, and so let me quote you quoting Napoleon, because one of the, here's proof I've read your book. One of the, the quotes you have in the book, you say <laughs> Napoleon said... When China rises, the world will quake. And and I, I guess in my mind, just because I'm sort of quirky, I'm like, okay, that has a meaning today. It's why you're quoting him. But I guess, you know, why did Napoleon say it? And is, is his reasoning the same as our reasoning today? That's a good question. I had, You know, I tried to find the quote, and apparently it's somewhat apocryphal, although I think it's sort of one of those quotes that if he didn't say it, he should have. Uh, and, uh, and, and Xi Jinping, the leader of, of China, is fond of, of quoting it. I mean... Well, look, I think Napoleon was nothing if not a brilliant strategist and military uh, genius. Um, I mean, he went too far, but Clausewitz, you know, the great military theorist in, in whose shadow I write, you know, was really formed by, by Napoleon. And I think Napoleon understood uh, power, raw power, yes, the necessity for a mobilized and wealthy country like France at the time to turn that into military power. But also, and this is, I think, sometimes... Uh, forgotten about Napoleon, I'm not certainly not a world's expert on him, but is that he coupled his military employment with political strategy. And that's, in a sense, what I think, you know, we, we can see the analogy here. Napoleon was always driving wedges through his other potential opponents. And I think, you know, Napoleon could see what China's latent capacity was. It was sort of in a slumber in the 19th century for a variety of reasons. Um, but when it did finally wake up, and, and people have been call, saying that China would, would become a great power for, well, for I mean, two centuries now. And it, but it's, it's finally happened, and it's very real now. 
I always like those hats he wore, so I, I'm all for that. But that that's a whole separate thing. Um, so <laughs> right. as I kind of build and off his, that. His hand and his, and his shirt, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that too. Well, that I do anyway. Um, you know, as, uh, before I get into kind of the, the structural limits of the United States, I think what sets that up and coming off of your point is you write in the book that we, the United States, is in a great power competition. And that was a striking comment for me or, or process in the book because, you know, stop your typical American on the street and everybody who, uh, you know, has this America first or whatever the view is. That's not a judgment call. But I mean, go up to most people like, oh, America, we are, we're the number one power. We're the number one everything. We, we rule the world. But you make the point, woe down there. You say there's a great power competition going on. Where do we fare in that today? Well, I think we're in the, in the competition of, of our lives. I mean, it just looked at objectively. I mean, China is a far bigger economy than the USSR was, than Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan combined were, or go back to World War One. I. I mean, it is a huge competition. And I mean, I was talking to somebody who's a real economic specialist the other day. And, you know, there are people who say the Chinese economy is about to fall apart. This person was saying, forget about it. These, these, this is a, I mean, this economy is incredibly productive. It has a long way to go. So I think, you know, the way I think of it, Paul, is like, you know, if you want the Chicago Bears to win or, or what have you, the Miami Dolphins or the Giants or whatever, you know, you don't say to your team, hey, you guys are so great. You know, you're never going to get challenged, right? I mean, I love America. I'm putting America first. I mean, I'm thinking about America's interests first. But in order to think about America's interests first, you got to get in there. You know, you got to work on the offseason. You got to lift. You got to you got to get the right diet and so forth. And we can do that. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a doomsayer. I'm not a, I'm not a, a hair shirt, you know, self-flagellating type. But I'm saying, look, we've got to look at what's actually happening. And I think the Ukraine situation right now is very telling that we still think we're unchallengeable. And it's really across party lines. You know, both sides seem to think they just yeah, China's a threat, but like, we don't really have to change the way we behave. You know, we don't have to give up X part of your diet, you know, to continue the analogy. And I think that's just, that's just wrong. I, I don't know what they're seeing that I'm not seeing because you got 1.4 billion people who have now gotten figured out how to get rich and powerful, and that's going to continue. Well, one of the points that you raise that I think is relevant to this, you say, look, the, the United States has structural limits on what it can do. So let me first ask you, what are those? Well, we're about, you know, 20 to 25 percent of global GDP. I mean, if you, it's not a perfect metric, but if you look at like standard measures of economic power, I mean, we're 330 million people. We are by far the most impressive large economy in the world, I think, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, we're a, a relatively small fraction of the global population, even of the global population that's economically highly productive. So we don't, you know, in 1945, when the rest of the world had destroyed itself, we were like 50 percent of global GDP. But even then, that was kind of transient. But during the Cold War, we were in a much stronger position economically and so forth. You know, our economy's done pretty well compared to Europe, for instance, over the last 20 years. There's a lot of problems at home, I, I'm the first to say. But, you know, this fundamental fact is you've got China, but you also have India rising, which is you know going to be a partner in a lot of ways, Southeast Asia. I mean, people really ascending to higher levels of economic uh, power uh, development. And so that's going to translate at some point into military power because we've become accustomed after the Persian Gulf War that, yeah, you know, we could lose these insurgencies or whatever because we just decided it wasn't worth it. But nobody could really challenge us mano a mano. And that's that's just not true. I mean, they, there is a very real possibility that the Chinese will challenge us and that we could be defeated if we continue to neglect the problem. Well, then if we focus on China, which is, I think, the suggestion you're making, you also go on to say, look, this means mm -hmm. we're going to have to do 
Yes, military in Europe. You mentioned Europe in Europe and the Middle East. And you also make the point, by the way, if we fail in Asia, we fail everywhere else. It's a really interesting connection you're making. No, I think you put it exactly right. And I I think you're right. And I think this is a big mistake that that we're making uh, in the Ukraine crisis right now for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, I mean, like, you know, just look at the amount. I mean, there are some people who are saying the Chinese may already, if you measure it in real terms, you know, how, how far their yuan goes versus our dollar and all this sort of stuff. There are some analyses that suggest they may already be spending more money on defense than we are. I, I'm skeptical of that. But anyway, you know, we're thinking about a fight that's right on their doorstep and is very far for us. So we're, we're dealing with the struggle of our lifetimes here, certainly since the Red Army in the 1980s. And that's going to mean doing less everywhere else. And the thing is, it's not that Europe isn't important. I love Europe. I love going to Europe. I've got a lot of European friends, et cetera. It's not personal, but you've got to think about what's in the Americans' interests, American people's interests. Well, we can't let China dominate 50% of global GDP. And then they're going to say, you know, look at what's happened to John Cena or LeBron James or pick your, pick your example. It's happening all the time where people have, you know, really toe the line with what the Chinese want. Right now it's about Xinjiang or Tibet or whatever, but it's going to go farther in the future. It's human nature. And so we can't allow that to happen. And that's whatever happens in Europe, that's not going to change because the reality is what would happen in the worst thing that happened in Europe. Well, first of all, Europe's a much smaller part of global GDP. So even if Putin could take over all of Europe, um, it wouldn't be as bad as letting the Chinese take over Asia. Secondly, that they can't do it because even if they invaded into Europe, they would stop somewhere in Central Europe. You know, I mean, realistically, they're not, they don't have the logistics of the military force to do it. And then more to the point, there's, I mean, the Europeans and our European allies dwarf Russia in economic wealth that they could turn into military power if they wanted to. Some of them do, like the Poles and the Brits, and I applaud them for it. But it's really the Germans aren't doing it. And so we're actually sending exactly the wrong signal right now. We should be getting them. We should be clear about this, that we, we can do this together, but they've got to take more responsibility. Actually, in the Middle East, in some sense, this has already kind of happened. The Israelis, very self-reliant. The Arab states, to some extent, are starting to move this Abraham Accords coalition. So there's a, you know, there, there, there's a model here, but it can't be this idea that we're always in front and we're always taking care of everything and nobody else has to worry. That's, that's actually the opposite of what we want to be communicating to our, our allies in the world. You talk about sometimes you mention sort of countries, but you're kind of talking, I think, more about regions. That's what I'm hearing from you. So how is it that the regional balances of power, how does that matter for our strategy, U.S. strategy? Well, that's a great question, Paul. And actually, my my friend and former colleague, Nadia Shadlow, who is the lead official in the development of the uh, national security strategy of 2017. That's the kind of the White House document. I was the guy working on the Pentagon document. But, but she said that's the most distinctive thing about your book, and that's the most important in practical terms. It sounds kind of abstruse, but actually it's really important for how we structure our foreign policy. My thing, look, if you look at a map of the world, right? I mean, people live all over the place. But the reality is economic power is concentrated in a few regions. Asia, particularly East and Southeast, some extent South Asia, you know, there, uh, Europe, uh, North America, because of the U.S. basically, and, and the Persian Gulf. But, you know, basically those are the areas that if, if there's power there, you know, if somebody's got the power there, they're going to be able to, to, as you indicated earlier, pretty much set the rules everywhere else or even impose their will. I mean, if we take an extreme example, the fate of Africa and Asia in the 19th century was set in Europe. Because that's where, if you could control Europe or whatever, you could you could project power out from there. And so that's that's the kind of the, the key issue. And and I am very focused on the region, particularly Asia, because that is where the power is. Churchill had a great line. He said uh, Churchill said a lot of things, but this was a particularly good one. He said, 
you know, if you get things right in the decisive theater, you can put everything right afterwards, but the, the reverse doesn't, doesn't hold true. So I think what we really need to be focused on, Paul, is making sure that we can stand up and support this anti-hegemonic coalition in Asia. And this, get, this leads to my focus on Taiwan. It's not because I have a special affinity for Taiwan. I mean, I admire, I like Taiwan, but I'm not, that's not how I ju- judge whether I think I, I recommend Americans be prepared to put their lives on the line. No, it's in our interest because, you know, it's a pretty fragile thing, this coalition, because everybody's, a lot of these countries don't want to live under the Chinese boot or thumb, but they're also scared, you know, and they're thinking maybe I should cut a deal now rather than risk, you know, the ire of Beijing. And that's why we really got to, we really got to focus there to, to make sure that, 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 you know, China doesn't, in a sense, move and do things that are, that don't seem that dramatic from a military or political perspective. Uh, you know, perspective in the near term, but but would have an enormous tectonic shift. It, just the last point I would make on this is, you know, you can have relatively small wars uh, or, or changes in the international structure that can have enormous political implications. So my favorite example of this, I mean, well, I mean, actually, you know, as Americans, I mean, the Mexican War of 1840, most people don't think that much about it, but it had huge ramifications. I mean, Texas and and California, I mean, uh, on the other Western states, and a relatively small war that most of the Europeans didn't even pay attention to, or the the wars of German unification. You know, Germany was not a united political entity. It was a cultural uh, entity before that, before the 1860s, 1870s. And the Prussian government in, in Berlin, through three short, sharp wars basically overturned several centuries of the European balance of power. So enormous, that, that really led to World War I and World War II. So this is what I'm worried about, is that we could have these, the Chinese could fight a couple of short, sharp wars and really just change the whole dynamic, but, it, but by then it might be too late. Or, or the costs of really pushing them back at that point would be, would be much worse than they, than they otherwise might need to be. And you do make that point in the book that a top priority for our strategy is to be sure China doesn't subordinate uh, Taiwan. But let me ask you about this. Listen, you worked in the Trump administration, so I'm really curious on your position on this. Up until Trump and after Trump, Vladimir Putin, enemy. Kim Jong-un, enemy. Uh, <laughs> President Xi, I don't know. Uh, but, but, you know, in comes Trump and says, these are now my best friends. And I'm sort of curious, especially from your position within that administration, the importance of alliances. I mean, I always felt that for Trump, they were personal things, personal relationships and feelings he had towards these people. But from your perspective, you probably saw uh, potentially, I guess, the strategic alliance with those countries. Yes? No? Well, I mean, look, I can't speak for President Trump's views. I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't know what was exactly going on in his head. But I will tell you, I mean, I think that, um, I think that President Trump was closer to where we want to, where we want to be, actually, than the. So I wouldn't say it's the traditional. I would say it's the post nineteen ninety one attitude towards our alliances, which tended that they're kind of these we're bound together by values and blah blah blah, and like you know the Cold War. This was about containing the Soviet Union. And, you know, yes, uh, Britain had a similar system or Canada, but, you know, we worked with South Vietnam and South Korea and the colonels in Greece. And, you know, we were our business then was making sure the Soviet Union didn't take over what was then the world's primary theater, Europe. Right. I mean, that was where the action was. And so we held the line forward in the middle of Germany because we didn't want to live in that world because we knew if the Soviets controlled Europe, our lives at home would ultimately suffer dramatically. And so I think what what you know the most important thing that the president Trump did and the Trump administration I think and then we'll be, look back in a hundred years is the fundamental shift towards China and not just saying hey we need to have a different relationship with China but China is a fundamental problem and we need to confront them now 
And that that was that was critical. And then, in a sense, like what we actually do want to do is we want to reassess all of these other relationships, because, you know, I look at like um, alliances more like uh, a, a business partnership, but more like an old school kind of like privately held business. You know, I mean, my not having been be in this kind of relationship myself, but like an old law firm or or bank or whatever. I mean, an insurance company, I'm sure, accounting firm where, you know, they're partners. Right. And they socialize with each other. Maybe they play golf or, you know, poker or whatever, watch football together. But they um, everybody's ultimately expected to pull their weight, you know, and it's a, it's a, it is a business orientation. And we in the in the generation after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've really allowed things to get out of whack. And now we have to reassess. We've got to reassess. Our, for instance, Germany is a huge problem. President Trump was right about that. It's a huge problem. Now, what we do about that is still an open question. And I don't think we figured it out. Likewise, you know, we do need the Japanese to do a lot more. We want the South Koreans and Taiwan to do more. And frankly, the ideal for us would be to have a different relationship with Russia. Now, the problem is, how do we get from here to there? Now, the Trump administration's actual record on Russia was significantly tougher uh, you know, the Obama administration had not given the Ukrainians javelins, which the Trump administration did. There were sanctions, et cetera. Um, but, you know, my view actually is that we would want Russia to have a different relationship. Now, we want to do that in a way that doesn't undermine our goals in Europe as well. And actually, I think the experience, even the experience of the Biden administration, is that this reset idea does not lead the Russians to become more accommodating. It actually whets their appetite. So that that to me is... Um, you know, one of those questions where, you know, Ch- China is now our orienting problem and everything to follow. Just to give an example, in the Cold War, the Soviets were our problem. China was our friend, you know, friend, al- kind of ally in the latter part of the Cold War. I mean, we made a deal with Mao Zedong. I mean, there's, you know, he's up there with Hitler and Stalin, the most evil human being who ever lived. But we made a deal with the devil uh, against the bigger devil that we were afraid of. Right. And uh, church, another Churchill line, as he said, uh, I think in the. 1940 or something, he said, you know, at this point, if the devil were up, I, I, you know, we're, we're potentially willing to fight Nazi Germany, I'd, I'd at least refer to him uh, positively in the House of Commons. And I said, it's a religious, you know, a religious person. But but I think that's the kind of logic where you, you know, you fix it, you focus on the goal and then you reorient. And it's interesting, you know, our, our enemy in the Cold War was Vietnam, of course, now as a partner, because it's worried about China. We were always on Pakistan's side vis-a-vis India. Now that's reversed. So we really have to reassess. It doesn't mean that we should just throw everything out and then, you know, uh, you know, willy nilly. But it means we should be reassessing. And I even think that's true in the North Korea context, where our interest in North Korea is, I mean, and that is a loathsome government. But, you know, we don't necessarily want North Korea just to be in the hands of China. And they don't want either. You know, we dealt with the Yugoslavs during the Cold War so that, you know, they were communists under Tito, but they were separate from the Soviets, you know, and we took advantage of that. Even the Romanians under Ceausescu, we kind of, so this is the kind of mindset that I think we should, we should, we should take. And, and, and just to kind of close the point, my concern is that, you know, we in the blob or whatever, it's, it's still so fixated on this euphoric kind of Madeleine Albright, George W. Bush had, you know, we stand taller, we're the crusade, we're going to end tyranny. And, and that's just, it's not going to work. And I don't think it's in what's in Americans' interests. 
The book is The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict by Elbridge Colby. Uh, what I loved about the book was I tried to put the pop, I mean, I cover politics for WGN. I tried to put kind of the politics piece of it a little bit aside as I just tried to understand defense strategy and, and your, uh, your stated goals with regard to China and creating a detente. It's really useful and, and, and valuable uh, from those strategic defenses, which is why it's good to call it The Strategy of Denial. Elbridge Colby, uh, I encourage everybody to read this book. It's a great book. And thank you for spending time with me. I appreciate it. And I enjoyed reading it, as you can tell I did. It's a great pleasure. Thanks very much. And exactly the effect I hope to achieve. So really, really appreciate it. I'm, I'm honored. Appreciate it. Be well. Thank you, sir. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.